Hello, dear friends. Welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well with creative people who have a lot to say. I'm thrilled to welcome Henriette Lazaridis to the podcast today. She's the author of The Clover House and a new book called Terra Nova. And what a story it is. Historical fiction about the race to the South Pole and a whole lot more. Is a graduate. Our guest is a graduate of Middlebury College, Oxford University, where she was a Rhodes Scholar. She's taught English at Harvard, and now she's helping writers at Grub Street in Boston. Her website, HenrietteLazaridis.com. Don't worry, I'll spell it later. <laughs> I just love her new novel, Terra Nova, a story of the quest to reach the South Pole, the suffragette movement in Britain, and the complex lives of characters who will keep you turning pages. Let's meet Henriette Lazaridis and welcome her right here on Mike. We're going to talk about Terra Nova, but first, Henriette Lazaridis. Not bad, huh? Not bad at all. Spent a lot of time in Greek restaurants, and I have many <laughs> Greek friends. I'm not Greek, but I love your name. I also love the fact that I don't often sit down with a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah, well. I, I had no idea what I was in for. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> Does it ever work in a restaurant if you say... Uh, Henriette, for Table for Two, uh, 8 o'clock Saturday night, uh, I'm the Rhodes Scholar. Does that help? <laughs> I've never tried, but, you know, <laughs> there's always a first time. <laughs> well, you're obviously a very fine writer. I was so impressed with this book, Terra Nova. Now I'm going to read your other ones. Uh, the Clover House is another novel. But here we are, taking an adventure to the South Pole. And you have a personal interest in this. Let's begin with that. I do. It's um, when I was seven... I watched a documentary with my parents. Actually, yeah, it was a documentary that apparently like ABC was running this series of adventurous people and probably all the people were men. Um, but we were watching this thing and it was about Robert Falcon Scott and mm -hmm. the race to the South Pole with Roald Amundsen in 1912. Mm -hmm. And I just like imprinted on Scott like a duckling. I just something about that. Really fascinated me. I don't think I understood. Of course, I didn't understand the nuances of his leadership. Like, he made mistakes. There were some glitches with the expedition. He died on the way back. But I was Team Scott from that moment. And I loved playing in the snow. I loved mm -hmm. fantasizing that I was an adventurer. So from then on, pretty much any time I was out in the snow, I would think I was Robert Falcon Scott. We got a dog that October, and I said, I'm going to name him Scotty if he likes the snow, which was so misguided. I mean, of course, it's October. You're going to have to give the dog a name before the snow comes. But also, did Scott really like the snow that killed him? But anyway, Scotty, I love it. Scotty I love, was my golden retriever. I love the origin story. It's so cool that you're affected by something you saw or witnessed or felt. And then you ultimately write this amazing novel, which we'll talk about. Let's talk about the fact that in those days, they were still racing to places, places that had not been discovered. We take it all for granted now. Now we're discovering galaxies far, far away. But right. in those days, it was pretty impressive. Right. I mean, there was – and I, I'm not an expert in the history of Antarctic exploration by any means. But, you know, people had gone and they had – they had first mapped it from the shore. They had seen that there was something there. I mean, there was this whole process of coming to understand that there was a, a landmass down there. And, yeah, in 1912, there was th – that was sort of the great age of Antarctic exploration. We had Shackleton. We had mm. Mawson from, I think, New Zealand. I don't want to get that one wrong. But um, all these people were trying to go and do scientific research but also make inroads. There was – 
I again, see, I'm going to make a mistake, but there was a point where, oh, someone has reached the furthest south, but it was like 82 degrees latitude. So here's right. now Roald Amundsen, a famed Swedish, sorry, Norwegian right. explorer, and Robert Falcon Scott racing to you know plant the flag for their nations. Because it was a, right, it was a national pride issue, yeah. but it was also a personal goal for these, I would say, ego-minded individuals. I'm sure, yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, and, you know, and Scott had been on other expeditions. He was on one of Shackleton's expeditions, but like now he was leading mm. the expedition. So, um, I mean, my guys are invented, but so I had to, I slotted them into the chronology before that actual race. Right. It, this is a work of historical fiction because there's that going on. And at the same time, there's the suffragette movement in Britain that I want you to talk about. But the title of the book, of course, has a double meaning, Terra Nova, meaning New Earth, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I um, It was really hard to find a title for this book. It had numerous titles, just sort of working titles along the way. But Terra Nova made sense to me. Um, it's a sort of, it's an homage to Robert Falcon Scott, whose expedition in that race with Amundsen was called the Terra Nova Expedition. Mm-hmm. Um, his ship was called the Terra Nova. Um, but I did, I do like it because it does have this resonance out to the other new world that Viola, my other most important character, is also experiencing or trying to sort of, she's trying to find new things with her photography, her art, but also with the women's suffrage movement, like sort of right. pushing into new territory for and, women. And even though Queen Victoria has passed in the early 1900s, this is still a Victorian age kind of story, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, women don't have the vote yet. It's suggested you stay home and I'll go out and fight the fight and all that. Right. I mean, it's it's technically, it's the Edwardian period. Yeah. But yeah. I yeah. mean, so like the, the, the clothing is less voluminous. But, you know, women's clothing. So we've moved away from the giant skirts and all of that. But but um, you know, and not everyone wears a corset, but it's still very what we would think of as very old fashioned. So we have a, a double story. It's happening at the same time, but it all comes together. And let's explain who the characters are. Haywood and Watts. Haywood is her husband. Mm-hmm. He's one of these proper British officer types. And Watts is his uh, sidekick, would you say? Well, they're climbing buddies. They have met through their their shared love of climbing and hiking. But Watts is a photographer. So he's a little more than a sidekick. Um, And I sort of wanted to create this relationship between those two men of real interdependence. They're, They're very, obviously, they're dependent on each other for their survival in this extreme place. But they're also each kind of making each other because... Haywood the Explorer, he needs the photographer to present him in this sort of noble way. To chronicle it. Yeah. yeah. And then the photographer needs the explorer because if he goes down there by himself, he well, first of all, he's not going to be able to do anything by himself. So he needs to be there because Edward Haywood brought him there. I mean, right, that's right. Yeah. Now, there's a team as well. Uh, there are others, uh, including the dogs, needless to say, but mm-hmm. there's also others who are valiant and uh, sometimes losing their lives in the process. It's a very dangerous uh, game they're playing. It is. It is. And I start with four in the sort of the, the book begins with the polar party already on what they think of as the last leg. And so the idea would have been that four of them would have made the last trip to the pole 
but as the first line says, you know, soon they will have to send Tite and Lawrence back because they're right. running out of food. So they, they have to make a decision to send two of those four back. Right, um, right. The book is called Terra Nova. We're talking with the author Henriette Lazaridis, and it's uh, it, it just captivated me. I thought the writing was superb, but also the, the texture and, and the plot and how things are happening in the South Pole and in London. So let's talk about London for a second. Let's talk about England. And Viola is back home. Uh, there's a subplot that I don't want to give away. I don't want to give away a relationship subplot because that is huge. Okay. Let's just say it's something that people will discover. But she's involved with this movement, and she's a photographer as well. She is a photographer. She has gone to the Slade School of Art, and she is uh, working with a camera and finding sort of an opportunity that while her husband is away, she has more freedom because mm. he's not there to say, you know, she, when they, you learn in the novel that when they first met, he was very appreciative of, you know, oh, she's in, she, she climbs as well, but she's also involved in the suffrage movement. That's kind of cool. But once they get married, he wants to protect her and he sort of turned the tables turn a little bit, but now he's gone. So she begins to be involved first as a photojournalist, just showing up at these marches and taking pictures. And she has a connection to one of the newspapers, but then that, changes because she she doesn't feel like it's enough. She wants to do something more. Right. Well, the women in these marches are often beaten and thrown in jail and, uh, dare I say, tortured to a certain extent because they're forced fed. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this was something that I learned when I sort of looked at the timing and I was like, hold on a second. Viola's in London. It's 1910. Oh, suffrage. She should be doing that. Um, <laughs> she should be involved. And so I knew that that was going on, but I had, I learned about the hunger strikers. So when women were arrested for protesting and marching and some of them were like throwing bricks through windows and things, mm -hmm. um, when they were arrested, they were treated as criminal prisoners. And some of them uh, went on hunger strike to, to, to claim being incarcerated as, as political prisoners. Right, they wanted right. that status. Making that statement. So right. they would go on hunger strike. And that alone was pretty – Awful. But then when the authorities at Holloway Prison for women would realize that these women were going to die, or they would start to force feed them, which in itself is a very violent and like mm -hmm. the more you read about that, the more you realize how horrific that actually is. Mm -hmm. um, and so the women – then they, the women would be released sometimes before their sentence was complete if they were sort of – if their health was really questionable. Mm -hmm. Holloway would release them and then when they b recovered – they would rearrest them and bring them back to finish their sentence. Um, but the women would come out. There's some photographs. There's one in particular. I have it on my website. There's a gallery of some of these photos of a woman named Olive Wary. It's W-H-A-R-R-Y. And she's sitting in a chair. She's just been released. And her clothes, she's swimming in her clothes. Mm. And you also know that, like, if they tried to force feed her, like, she's some of these women, their noses were broken, their teeth were broken. Mm. It was terrible. So Viola is a photojournalist who's on a mission. She's not just taking pictures. She wants to make a difference, which in those days would have been pretty outrageous, according to the patriarchy. Yeah. And, and also she has she, – so she wants to do something that can really make the, the – make government sort of sit up and take notice. Um, but she also has her own artistic ambition. Mm. And I, I wanted to sort of put her in a position where it's not 
straightforward. You know, how much of her desire to help the movement is kind of selfish? Well, that's a, a theme that runs throughout on both ends of the spectrum, in the South Pole hunt and in London. The frailty of, of people, we're all frail, we're all sinners, and, and that sense of ego and emotion takes over all of our characters. There's a story, I'm sure you're familiar with Jack London, the story called To Build a Fire. It's very short, and it's the most descriptive thing I've ever read about a man freezing to death. It's, it's fascinating. It's kind of like the Red Badge of Courage death scene. Mm, if you, know, I mean, yeah. you know about all this. You <laughs> yeah. teach English. I want to go back to the South Pole for a minute. In your book, the description of the cold and the ice and the impact of the environment was it took your breath away. So I have to ask you about the research that you did because you describe what it's like to be in that environment, whether it be uh, – you know, taking care of your bodily waste or finding food or killing the dog, whatever. It was harrowing, but great reading. Oh, good. Um, good <laughs> Don't to, worry. Good on Don't, both counts. Good on both counts. It, I couldn't tear myself away, but I was fascinated with the with the information. Well, it's interesting. So because I was an Antarctica groupie from such a young age, sort of through my whole life, I've been dipping into the writing around Antarctica. Never really becoming a, an expert, but just kind of dipping into it yeah. my whole life. And f over the decades, before it was a thing to go to Antarctica, I would sort of say, like, I wish I could go. There's got to be a way to go. And my children would say, Mom, you can't go to Antarctica. You'll get cold and you'll die. Because I also happen to have had frostbite a couple times or frost Ooh. nip maybe but like yeah. I, my ear blistered when I was a kid and toes are very mm. prone to frostbite so I, the, my children knew like she gets cold all the time this is not a good idea but so when I started writing the book I stopped reading all the Antarctic stuff I kind of put an embargo on all that material because I didn't want to be influenced by Scott's language or this other man, Apsley Cherry Garrard, who wrote this book called The Worst Journey in the World, who was on Scott's expedition. I didn't want to be influenced. But so it was all kind of in my mind. And I also drew on the fact that I have been very cold at certain times, nothing like what they experienced. But like your eyelids, they do they do kind of tap. Even, yeah. You know, when you get really, really cold, you're well, any exposed skin, right? Any exposed yeah. skin. I mean, today, the the gear and the protective gear is, is amazing compared to then. I mean, they were... Yeah. In the Stone yeah. Age, literally. And and little things like uh, the fellow, and his name escapes me, you'll help me, back in London, the older gentleman who's missing some fingers because he's been on some climbs. Oh, Samuel Minor. Yeah, Samuel Minor. Mm. And the way you describe him, I, I could, we could picture him, of course, and it, this is fraught with all kinds of danger and not just death, but dismemberment. Yeah. I mean, people would come back if you, I mean, if you survived, you might have an amputation of fingers, toes. I mean, we see this with uh, Himalayan climbers now. We were just watching a documentary the other day about somebody who lost a bunch of toes mm -hmm. uh, after successfully, you know, climbing Everest and, and returning to base camp and losing limbs and, or to digits. And it's not just the physical impact, but it's what happens to your mind. Um, and there's some of that in the book. That was something that I, I wanted very much to explore, again, having never been there, mm -hmm. just thinking. And my book takes place during the Antarctic summer, so it's daytime all the time. But w in the back of my mind, I kept thinking about what must it be like when it's just dark the whole time? Yeah, and there's no satellite phone. There's no GPS. Yikes. There's nothing, maybe a compass. And you don't know in those blinding snowstorms 
that come out of nowhere. You you're just lost. Yeah. At sea. Yeah. Wow. And there are these winds called catabatic winds that <laughs> are incredibly forceful, and they're I think unique to well, they might not be unique to Antarctica, but that sort of environment. And it sounds it it's horrible. I was I was just the other day rereading, looking for some stuff in Scott's journals because now I can read them again. And he recorded temperatures of 50 degrees below Fahrenheit oh as they were going to the – like on that last push to the pole. I mean you can't last more than a few minutes. It's amazing that he did last. He, did, he died on the way back? Died on the way back. They were it, – it's interesting because now uh, people can sort of – who study this can see that the calories that they were calculating, they were, they were off. Mm-hmm. So even in their – even if their plans had gone completely perfectly – they would have been, you know, losing weight steadily, um, and and with Scott's situation, because they got they got pinned for by weather for a couple extra days. They, you know, a- any miscalculation that you make, or as I tried to create in the book, there are moments when if you push too hard and go too fast, that's dangerous. You're going to use more calories. Right. You're also maybe even in that environment going to sweat, and if you sweat, you're toast. Right. Like you're you're now you're going to freeze. It's harrowing, but it's it just keeps you on the edge of your seat. Getting back to – well, both stories involve photography, and this is another thing I wanted to ask you about. I mean people take thousands of pictures a week on their phone and don't even think about it. In those days, it was a cumbersome art. Describe what, what for instance, Watts was using in, in uh, Antarctica. So I made him a little bit anachronistic because mm-hmm. at the time – he could have chosen to take celluloid. That was kind of new. That was a thing. But at, people were still using glass plate negatives. And these are rather large. How, how big are they? <laughs> they're sort of, if I remember, they're maybe like 10 by 8. So they're not huge. I try. I kind of took some poetic yeah, license. But, but to schlep but, those to a trip to Antarctica. <laughs> just... Exactly. Because like each box held, I forget, you know, a dozen. But you need, you need a lot of these things. Yeah. And once you take the picture... <laughs> You got to carry. You carried that glass plate negative to where you took the picture, and then you have to carry that glass plate all the way back. And if the glass breaks, there ain't no picture. There's no picture. Wow. Right. So yeah, and I I made it so that he has chosen this very this burdensome yeah. mode when he could he could have done celluloid. He would have done both if he was truly sort of of the moment but he's foregone celluloid because he wants the greater clarity and accuracy of glass plate negatives there's a gentleman i went to see a couple well, many years ago when i was researching the photography side um fred mirliani he's at the like i forget the actual name of it it's a historical photography center in east mm-hmm. cambridge mm-hmm. and he had glass plate negatives which are not hard to find but we sort of he talked through the whole process with me and when you see the clarity of the image, it's astonishing. And she's using similar uh, technique, right, back in London to do the photojournalism that she's doing. Yes, and she also has a small camera called, I think you pronounce it Midge, it's M-I-D-G. Right. That's like, it also takes glass plates, but it's more portable. So she uses that, and she also sets up a tripod. And this is what Watts is doing in Antarctica. He's setting up a tripod, he's getting underneath a cloth drape, and he's putting the glass plates in the holder. And let's just tell the audience, when you read this book, and I I hope you do, it's called Terra Nova, uh, 
everything about what we're talking about matters. Every little detail matters in terms of the photography, the position of the camera, how things are developed in the dark room. I love dark room developments. Uh, they're always fun when something appears and somebody notices it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to give any more away than that, but it's a, it's a, it's a mystery as well as a love story. There's a lot going on, lots of uh, action. Can you remind us about the suffragette movement in London, in Britain, that is? Because in America, it was, what, uh, 1919, I believe, or 1920 when women got the right to vote. I believe that's it. Was it prior to that, right around the same time? It was right around the same time. And again, if I say, I'll probably get something wrong because I I focus, when I do research, I focus on what I need in the moment and I make sure it's right in the moment. But then sometimes a lot of the information just slips right out of my head. Um, But it was right around the same time. The the famous uh, leaders of the movement in the UK were Christabel and Emmeline Pankhurst. So the Pankhursts were were big figures in that movement at that time. Yeah, I, I'm just looking it up because I can. It's here, you know, <laughs> the, the computer on my phone. Mm-hmm. Women's rights movement, 1848 to 1917. So it was around the same time that. Yeah. that so they, but they pushed longer than uh, the U.S. women, I think, because the U.S. suffragette movement started in the late 1860s, 1870s, I believe. Ah, yeah. But but okay. it, be that as it may, it was yeah. it was happening. I mean, Britain outlawed slavery before we did. Right. So. They right. beat us on both counts, right. which is interesting. That's right. And and let's talk a little bit about the uh, the whole setting in Britain. I mean, you're here in Cambridge, not Cambridge, England, but mm-hmm. you've spent some time in Britain. I take it. I right? have, yeah. In, in schooling and so forth. Yeah, um, I I have I lived in the UK for four years. One of which, or just under a year, was in London, um, and but in a different part of London from where. Um, Viola lives. But I was, when I was in the middle of writing this book, I had written all the men's section. And then I went to London to visit a friend and I had the Viola idea in my mind, but there was a lot I hadn't figured out yet. But we went walking around Chelsea and there, that's where Robert Scott lived. I put my characters on a street, a real street called Margareta Terrace. That's where Viola lives. It's actually behind the actual house where Robert Scott Quite lived. serendipitous. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, you answered a question, but I want you to f- answer it more fully. I was going to ask you about the structure of the writing because there are two competing events happening at the same time, the trip to Antarctica to the South Pole, the race to the South Pole, and what's going on in London. I was going to ask, did you write one chapter and then another, or did you, you, but you wrote them all as, as all man and then all woman, and then you fused them? Yeah, I wrote all, the men's section from because I date I write by by hand and I um and I date my pages and so I could see it now like early December through March of 2015 I wrote the men's section. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of had this extended phase where my notebooks are all just like questions to myself and notes and what should Viola do and where should she be and some of that a lot of that I had figured out before I started writing wow. the men but there was a point where I was like hold on a second I can't start the Viola part because I, there's some stuff I need to figure out. And I had a lot of false starts with her. There's a whole different way that the thing began for her. Um, but then I then I wrote all of her section, and I think I had to rewrite it three times before you, I got it right. You mentioned you do it in longhand? I do. I write really? my drafts. Yeah. What's your pen of choice? I change, but I really love fountain pens. Yeah, I, I had a feeling you'd say that. Yeah. yeah. I, w- when I first was... 
trying to return, so to speak, to fiction writing while still an academic, my then very small children gave me, quote unquote, what can small children do? Um, a fountain, an antique fountain pen. Oh. We were living in London and they, with their father, you know, found this antique fountain pen. And so I started. So in a way of kind of, again, talk about imprinting like a duckling. It was like, oh, I'm writing fiction now. I'm writing with a fountain pen. Yeah. And I've kind of never looked back. Um, and I, I change around. But. Bromfield Street, you ever go there? I do, I do. That's and a Boston I, reference, folks, yeah. for those of you listening in Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. Well, uh, Terra Nova is the novel. Uh, I loved it, and I invited Henriette to join me. I get so many books sent to me. Most of the novels I can't really uh, explore because they're, you know, they're romance or whatever. And they're good, but they're not as engrossing. I think this topic was just, just swept me away, and I, I was... I was very cold reading it. <laughs> I read it by the fire to warm up. Perfect. <laughs> but uh, I wish you the very best. What's your website, by the way? It's myfirstandlastname.com. So henriettelazaridis.com. Easy for you to say. I know. I'll it's spell just, it. Henriette oh, okay. is the way it sounds. H-E-N-R-I-E-T-T-E. And Lazaridis is L-A-Z-A-R-I-D-I-S. Henriettelazaridis.com. Thank you so much for sharing Terra Nova with us, and uh, we wish you the very best. Thank you, Jordan. This is so great. Great to come in and talk with you. Henriette Lazaridis. Let me spell that. H-E-N-R-I-E-T-T-E. Last name L-A-Z-A-R-I-D-I-S. HenrietteLazaridis.com. Author of the book Terra Nova, also The Clover House. Thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for his help with publishing. To everyone at Chart Productions, where we produce this and so many other podcasts and shows. And of course, you and the growing audience from the North Pole to the South. Dozens of countries and every state in the Union. Find out more at jordanrich.com. And until next time, remember to be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>